Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. I am Jan Fran. Today is Monday, the 31st of May, and recently I've come across a term that I have been offended by on a daily basis. You might have heard it too, geriatric millennial. So millennials are people born between 1980 and 1995, depending who you ask. But geriatric millennials are those born between 1981 and 1985. So a micro-generation, which includes me, and I'm guessing includes you too, Annika Smithhurst. Oh, harsh, Jan Fran. I don't quite fit into that. Really? I was born in 1987, but I actually am offended in the other way. I don't like being called a millennial at all. I think it's loaded and <laughs> it more describes people born at the other end, the after 90 end. I would like to think I'm a geriatric millennial. <laughs> I think you definitely would have some geriatric millennial traits. I'm Thank just, just going to put you. it out there. Well, so this term originated from an article that went viral because it was posted on the platform Medium. And on today's show, we actually have the author of that piece, Erica Dewan. She's going to break down the term geriatric millennial and explain why it's actually not as bad as it sounds. A geriatric millennial is someone who's comfortable with the communication styles that may come from their traditional baby boomers or Gen Xers, but they're also very comfortable with their younger digital native characteristics as well. Yeah, so geriatric millennials might just be the hero the world needs. Uh, (laughs) That's coming up in just a sec, but first to the headlines with non-geriatric millennial Annika. Victorian authorities are awaiting the test results of dozens of care home residents after Melbourne's COVID outbreak spread into an aged care home. That, of course, is a a significant concern for us and uh, we've got everybody focused on trying to identify where that's come from and any other exposure that she may have had. That was Deputy Secretary of Victoria's Health Department, Jerome Weinmar, speaking there yesterday. Um, Now, the response was sparked after... A worker at the home in her 50s tested positive, this was on Saturday, after working two days at the home while infectious last week. Yeah, and alarmingly, contact tracers are not sure where the woman caught the virus. Yeah, that makes her the first mystery case in Victoria's latest outbreak. Um, That's got people very worried. It's not the only mystery surrounding Victoria's outbreak though. No, and look, mystery cases were what we didn't want. I was speaking Mm. to a number of ministers and they said that was always going to be the trigger for a lockdown. We got there quicker. But the other mystery is, of course, how this started. Now, we know a bloke who lives in the north of Melbourne. He went and did two weeks quarantine in a South Australian hotel. He got out of that. He tested negative. He came back to Victoria. Oops, he actually tested positive. Mm. Um, He was in the community for a little bit. He had it. They thought they got on top of that. A few weeks went by, this latest outbreak has come out, and we actually don't know how they're connected yet. Now, they might not be. Well, they are. (laughs) There's been genomic testing, which has proven they are, but we actually can't work out that link. Now, Mm. they're not calling that a mystery case, but it's a bloody big mystery, Jan Fran. Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, the state's outbreak has grown to 40 cases now. There was five new community infections that were announced yesterday. Um, And I know that lockdown's supposed to end on Thursday. Uh, Have the events of this weekend affected that, do you reckon? Look, the numbers were low, which is good. We've sort of had fives and fours and we haven't really seen that spike. But um, I did hear that Monday and Tuesday were meant to be the days where, you know, those numbers would go out. We've seen huge amounts of people getting tested, which is really, really good. And everybody's sitting at home and doing what the government have sort of mm. said. But mystery cases, this has been a real worry. So, look, we do have a team of contact tracers working 
basically 24 hours a day to try and work this out. Hopefully they can work out where this worker picked it up. But if not, I think that's something that's going to have everybody really worried. Oh, and there's also the Victorian government's come out sort of slamming the federal government for actually not providing financial support to workers and businesses during this lockdown. Four to five times uh, over the last three or four days, I've had conversations with the federal treasurer uh, urging them to make some contribution. Even got to the point where I said, even make it a piecemeal one so that we can pretend that you're doing something tangible. Oi, Victorian Treasurer Tim Pallas there, not mincing any words by the sounds of what he just said. Nah, and if you know Tim Pallas, he's not like that. He's um, a reasonable bloke, which means he must be pretty damn frustrated. Look, there is a lot of criticism at the Morrison government about this. When I speak to them, they've sort of said, we've given Victoria a lot more support than any other state. They relied on JobKeeper for a lot longer because they were in that lockdown last year. It'll be interesting to see if they do extend it, if it goes for a week. You can kind of see the argument that setting up a new system when we don't have JobKeeper anymore, just for, you know, five days, seven days might might be more trouble than it's worth if we're Mm. going to be out of this on Thursday. If we're not out of it on Thursday, that'll be a different case. I think they might have to do something. Uh, Obviously, if it goes on for a little bit longer, they'll definitely have to do something. So they're not promising anything at the moment. They're saying that this is Victoria's issue to deal with. And there was a support package announced yesterday by the state government. So if you are a small business owner, there is some help out there. The federal government just hasn't chipped in yet. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison will today hold official talks with New Zealand PM Jacinda Ardern in Queenstown with trade and regional security expected to be on the agenda. We'll have the opportunity to talk through those issues and how we can each reinforce our our joint efforts uh, to ensure a free and independent uh, Indo-Pacific. Scott Morrison speaking there. His meeting with Ardern at the weekend is the first time the pair has met face-to-face since the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, now his visit coincided uh, with New Zealand announcing that it will support Australia in its World Trade Organisation case against China over barley tariffs. Um, Australia will go to the World Trade Organisation basically to dispute China's decision last year to slap tariffs of up to 80% on Australian barley. And I think over the last year, our relationship with New Zealand has been I guess a little bit strained over our approach to China versus their approach to China and also strained somewhat by something called our 501 deportation policy, which sees Australia deport citizens of New Zealand who've been living in Australia for years, if not decades, because Australia deems them of bad character or they've committed a crime. And opposition parties in Israel are one step closer to ousting longtime PM Benjamin Netanyahu from power after a far-right politician threw his support behind the anti-Netanyahu coalition. Leader of the far-right Yamina party and former Netanyahu aide Naftali Bennett announced overnight he would work with the centralist Lapid party to form a coalition government. Now, Netanyahu's right-wing party has struggled to form government in recent months after multiple elections, and Bennett said he simply made this decision to prevent Israel going to a fifth election in two years. Yeah, Netanyahu has been in power for 12 years and he is facing corruption charges Um, and he says that the opposition deals to oust him are a threat to Israel. A number of people facing charges over their involvement in the January Capitol riots in the US are now arguing they were duped into attending the protest. 
Yeah, so lawyers for at least three defendants who've been charged in connection with the siege say that they're going to blame election misinformation and conspiracy theories for misleading their clients. Not the fact their clients believe them. Some of those facing charges say they had put their faith in the President Donald Trump who had repeatedly made claims about the 2020 election being stolen in the lead-up to the riot. Yeah, more than 400 people are facing charges after a mob of pro-Trump supporters attacked the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. in January. Um, This was in an attempt to overturn the results of the U.S. presidential election. It didn't work. And Japanese tennis star Naomi Osaka has been fined and faces being thrown out of the French Open after following through on her promise not to attend press conferences. Yeah, so the Board of Grand Slam Tennis uh, said overnight that they would be fining Osaka 15000 US dollars after she didn't turn up to answer questions from journalists following her first match at the French tournament. So Osaka announced this on social media last week. She said she's not going to be attending the post-match press conferences as she felt it was pretty bad for the player's mental health. Yeah, and I I read that when she put it out on Instagram and I I really felt for her because she said that sometimes these interviews, you know, they they tend to throw you off your game or, you know, if you've lost a game and you're in a bad place sort of mentally and emotionally, you have to stand there and face the press and they get asked these questions that they've gotten asked before time and time again. But tennis authorities are just, they're not having it. They say the code of conduct compels players to talk to the media after their matches and that actually Osaka could be suspended from not just the current tournament but future tournaments if she continues to boycott press briefings. Yeah, I would have thought losing 15000 US dollars would be really bad for your mental health too, but I guess she earns a lot of money. Look, it's an interesting one. The players do get so much out of the media hype around them. You know, they get sponsorship deals. It is usually a two-way relationship, and mm. I've seen some of those press conferences, and compared to how we treat politicians and the sort of questions we throw at them, the sports ones seem kind of nice. I think that, um, you know, they're usually quite friendly. But look, she is young and it is um, a gruelling schedule they have and it's a difficult decision for people like her. Yeah, I wonder if um, any other players on those tournaments will, will follow suit or not. All right, thanks, Annika. Up next, Tom is jumping in and we're going to chat to Erica Dewan, who wrote that um, viral medium piece on geriatric millennials. She's also a digital communication expert and author. She's going to be breaking down that term that I love to hate. What is a geriatric millennial? That's coming up in just a sec. Introducing Geriatric Millennials. The oldest millennials born between the early 1980s and mid-90s are now hitting middle age. People born in the early 1980s have been dubbed Geriatric Millennials. Geriatric Millennials? That's what they call us now? Isn't that what you are? Erica, thank you so much for um, joining us on the briefing. A Geriatric Millennial, Mm. what is it? A geriatric millennial are kids that were born in the early 1980s. They spent their formative years on both sides of the analog and digital divide. They were the first to grow up with PCs in their home, first to join the first social media communities. Uh, But they're also quite confident now on Clubhouse or even Twitter. All right. So you're speaking to someone who was born in 1981. And And 85. We're both geriatric millennials. I remember buying my, my family's first 
PC doing all the research. Then we started using ICQ. Mm-hmm. Really got into MySpace in the mid-2000s. Are we sort of the people you're talking about? Absolutely. Do you remember dial-up connections? Do I? We, we played the sound of that on the on the briefing earlier this week. <laughs> oh my! That's like I, that's I that seared we, into my Netscape brain. Navigator. I'll never forget it. Yes, we all remember when these digital tools were primitive. We were full of digital optimism. We we won't forget how new they were then. Uh, and in many ways, we remember how to read the eye contact and that you know the handshake cues in a room, but also. We can quickly adapt to new tools as they evolve. Why does this particular group of people, so really we're talking about sort of four or five years between those born between 81 and 85, why do they need this particular title? Well, I just published a new book called Digital Body Language. And in my research for the book, I researched and interviewed workers across the generational spectrum. And what I found was that the difference in even a single generation was impossible to ignore. While a younger millennial may have thought a period at the end of a text meant that someone was angry, an elder millennial may have thought that was totally fine. Whereas a younger millennial may have thought that picking up the phone or calling someone out of the blue was a bit more intrusive. Those that grew up with the landlines that were in that generation uh, felt it was totally okay. And Mm. and my key learning from that was that it's wrong to label an entire generation that spans 20 years as being the same. And my goal with my article that was really the foundation of the geriatric millennial firestorm (laughs) was to start a a conversation that it's wrong to look at an entire 20 years of an age group generation as being the same. And that there's actually some unique characteristics of what I call geriatric millennials. They know how to bridge the divide between a digital native who grew up with technology and doesn't know a world without it with digital adapters, those that maybe don't have high tech fluency that have had to really adapt and feel like immigrants to remote work. Mm. And you talk about this, you know, at least in the article, specifically in terms of the workplace. And I guess your argument is that you know, so many generations have to work together in the same workplaces. And that, as you say, the geriatric millennials can sort of be a bridge. Tell us a little bit about how this actually plays out in the workplace. Like, what are the circumstances in which a geriatric millennial can be very, very handy at work? A geriatric millennial is someone who's comfortable with the communication styles that may come from their traditional baby boomers or Gen Xers, but they're also very comfortable with their younger digital native characteristics as well. They may be able to teach some traditional communication skills to younger employees, maybe reminding a a junior colleague when to pick up the phone versus responding with that Slack message, when to maybe be thoughtful of your video call backgrounds and formal sales meetings, and also just how to read a lean-in in a sales conversation in a way that digital natives may not be privy to. Uh, but they can also help older team members uh, remember when to send that Slack instead of calling or sending a reply all email, how to make sure to be inclusive and not biased to those that are using emojis and GIFs and memes when it's actually mm-hmm. friendly and, and encouraging in building workplace cultures. And most importantly, I think geriatric millennials are the translators. Uh, They understand Mm. fluency on both sides and they can help be that bridge builders as we move into a hybrid workplace where both analog and digital communication is here to stay. Yeah, so essentially you're talking about reading social cues in just that vast range of context that we now communicate in given all these digital tools. I have just had a thought that just came to me though that what's controversial about this is not that you've defined a subdivision of the millennial. 
It's actually the label geriatric <laughs> that is really probably what's created the controversy here. Couldn't you have used something more like millennial elders? I've heard that yeah. used before. Why did you go with geriatric? Or distinguished millennial. Oh, there you we know, go. I like that. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Why not oh, I use like that? the ring of that as well. <laughs> yeah. You know, as I stated in my first sentence of the original article um, that caused the firestorm for Medium, um, the term geriatric millennial was never meant to be a scientific term. It was actually a term that I had heard with friends over coffee dates and lunches. And it, it was really meant to be more uh, more of a humor, a, a funny term to think about <laughs> the fact that we are not just the young kids anymore. We, we are old. We do have wisdom mm. that we can bring to the workplace. Mm. And I understand why some people may be offended by the term, but <laughs> I take pride in being a geriatric millennial. What's wrong with being old? <laughs> let's use it to have wisdom. And also, let's actually think about the fact of why it's having such a negative connotation. Why do we view elders or this phrase in such a negative way when actually it can be empowering? Whatever label you'd like to use, elder millennial, Oregon Trail, Zennial, or geriatric, I think what's more important is the conversation that an entire generation is not the same. Yeah. And we have to really talk about our differences as well as what unifies us. And our strengths, which is what you're pointing out, which is That's which right. is really good. What do you think these labels really do? Because they're often used to uh, in a pejorative way. But do you think, I guess, having these terms that define the different cultural traits or or references or behaviors of of generations is is helpful and and how so you know as someone who is a you know self-proclaimed geriatric millennial I never really identified with a lot of the characteristics of the millennial generation a lot of the entitlement the trophy generation I mean I grew up in an Indian immigrant family where if I got a B on a science test, I wouldn't be allowed to go on sleepovers for a year. <laughs> so, wow. you know, I think that in many ways, what labels can do is in this case, I got hundreds of emails and, and social media posts telling me of individuals saying, Erica, I feel seen. You've actually helped me identify that this is why I didn't feel like a true millennial. You've you've helped me understand where I fit. And then others saying, you know, how dare you? How dare you, you know, label us in this way? And I think what is important is to remember that labels can either unify us or divide us, depending mm. on how you want to look at it. What I'm really hoping to do is start a conversation about the power of a unique cohort that straddles the digital native and digital adapter of divide. And that this cohort that grew up on the cusp of technology is one that can really help us lead teams to thrive in a hybrid workplace. Right so, on. Yeah. you know, label yeah. or not, let's let's talk about more how, how we can use it for good. We're Woo! on board. We're, we're looking at our Gen Z producer, though, who's sort of shaking his head and laughing, but Jan and I are right with you. <laughs> well, you know what? Because when I first heard the term, I was, like, perpetually offended. And then, you know, the more I read about it, and just even in talking to you as well, Erica, I'm like, actually, no. Ger- you feel seen. Geriatric millennials are heroes. They're the heroes the world needs. And you know what, guys? You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. You know, and, and again, we love we love our Gen Zers. We love our younger millennials. We love our baby boomers and Gen Xers. Um, and at the same time, 
this is a moment to realize that many of us did not feel like we fit in any of those categories. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if this is helping people find a place and also realize what they can do, the skills they can bring to the workforce today, that is something that makes me really happy from the virality of the piece. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a really interesting point you make of, you know, not really fitting into any particular category. Do you think that's because, you know, things are changing so quickly it's hard for a, a generation of 20 mm. years to have the kind of same cultural traits. Yeah, and the same label. So that's why you do need to maybe yeah. break it down like you have. Absolutely. I mean, I th- I think that many people never felt like they fit within one category or another category. And my goal was not necessarily to start an entirely new set of categories, but instead have a conversation about our unique strengths and differences because of the amount of years, the primary amount of years where digital communication was actually our primary form of communication. I just feel like the generations are going to get shorter and shorter because things change so quickly. Do you reckon? Absolutely. I mean, what's coming after Gen Z? I mean, it has to be like 0.5 or 0.10, you know, (laughs) much quicker. Maybe there'll be two-year increments instead of 20. Oh, man. The terror and also the joy. It reminds me of when Pentium processors first came in in the 90s and they had to find new names for each of them. Okay, literally no one listening to this podcast will know what that is. I don't even know what that is. The Intel, oh, God. I know, maybe that's real, you know. That's deep, that's deep geriatric. A geriatric millennial. Oh, I'm on the cusp. I'm I'm on the cusp of the cusp of the cusp. Yeah, totally. Well, Erica, it's been very enlightening um, hearing your take on geriatric millennials. I feel so much better talking to you, actually. So thank you very much for sharing the wisdom. Thank you so much. And if you want to learn more, you can check out my new book, Digital Body Language, where the insights really came from. Well, that was Erica Dewan, um, widely credited for creating the term geriatric millennial, which I felt bad about before I interviewed her. And now I feel great about because we're actually legends. So if you're a geriatric millennial listening to this podcast, just know that. And that is it for today's show. Uh, on tomorrow's episode, the vaccine rollout, how it started versus how it's going. Listener.